Open your Bibles up to Psalm 106. I appreciate Mike doing the scripture reading and the congregational prayer earlier in the service. He read close to half of the psalm. I'm going to read the second half, but before I do that, let me um, just make a couple connections with the psalm that we had last week, Psalm 105. Uh, We had mentioned last week that Psalm 105 and 106 are actually uh, best read together as a pair, uh, that there uh, seems to be very clearly a way in which uh, Psalm 105 and 106 play off of each other. So, most clearly, when you go to Psalm 105, the passage that we had last week, the passage is framed by statements about God remembering His covenant and remembering the Word that He gave to His people. And everything that falls in between those statements on the front and back into that psalm goes to talk about all the things that God did for His people through the days of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through Joseph through the wilderness wanderings, the exodus, bringing them into the land as their inheritance to enjoy. And the psalm is communicating to us that whether from the experience of God's people, whether they viewed their experiences positively or negatively, framing their entire lives was God's mindfulness of His promises to them and His determined actions to bring His people to a place where they could enjoy the fulfillment of those promises without end. So everything, both good and bad, both beautiful and ugly, all those things God is providentially ordering to work towards the fulfillment of His promises for the blessing of His people. And that was caused to praise and to rejoice because the Lord remembers His promises and He's faithful to His Word. Psalm 106 comes in on the heels of that, and it picks up on some of the remembering language. So, for example, in 106.4, notice the, the speaker, the author says, "'Remember me, O Lord, in your favor toward your people.'" And then, as we'll see in just a little bit, if you skip towards the end of the psalm, Psalm 106.45, it says that the Lord remembered His covenant for their sake. So, you're picking up God's remembering from Psalm 105, but what 106 does, it draws a stark contrast between a good and gracious God who is always mindful of His promises and always paying attention to His people, contrasting that to His people in 106 who are characterized by constant perennial forgetfulness. So, if Psalm 105 is calling God's people to rejoice and to take comfort in the fact that God is a God who remembers, Psalm 106 is coming in to say, in the same way that you ought to rejoice because that's who God is, you ought to repent because this is who you are. Pick up with me. At, where did Mike finish off reading? Verse 23? Yes, thank you. Verse 23. We're picking up at verse 24. 
Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe in His word, but grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. Therefore, He swore to them that He would cast them down in the wilderness and that He would cast their seed among the nations and scatter them in the lands. They joined themselves also to Baal Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. In this way, they provoked Him to anger with their deeds, and the plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and interposed, and so the plague was stayed, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness to all generations forever. They also provoked him to wrath at the waters of Meribah, so that it went hard with Moses on their account. Because they were rebellious against his spirit, he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with the blood." Thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against His people, and He abhorred His inheritance. Then He gave them into the hand of the nations, and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were subdued under their power. Many times He would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel, and they sank down in their iniquity. Nevertheless, He looked upon their distress when He heard their cry, and He remembered His covenant for their sake and relented according to the greatness of His loving kindness. He also made them objects of compassion in the presence of all their captors. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations to give thanks to Your holy name and glory in Your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. This is God's Word. Bow with me in prayer. Lord, You are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness. You forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet You will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. We ask, Father, that as we see these truths revealed in Psalm 106, that You would give us the response that Moses had when he heard those words, that we would bow and worship. Help us, Father, to rightly grieve and sorrow over our sin so that we can rejoice in Your goodness to us. It's because of Jesus that we're able even to make this prayer. Amen. Before we make a couple observations on Psalm 106, obviously another lengthy psalm, so there's no way that we're going to be able to go verse by verse to cover everything. We're going to drop in 
and try to use by way of repetition some things that the author seems to stress because of the fact that he repeats some ideas or some concepts more than once, and so we'll have to be somewhat selective. Let me say up front, though, because this will be important when we, come, when we sort of begin to get towards the end of Psalm 106, it is important to recognize right up front that whereas we may not know exactly what the circumstances or the details were surrounding the writing of Psalm 105, we do have an indication of what's going on, what the backdrop is to Psalm 106, and that is that the psalmist, whoever he is, is experiencing in some way God's judgment and God's discipline on his sin and the sin of the people. So if you look at verse 4, for example, remember me, O Lord, in your favor toward your people. Visit me with your salvation, that I may see the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation. Don't forget me, God, wallowing away here in this judgment, in this misery. Save me. Save me with your people. And then at the end of Psalm 106, verse 47, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations to give thanks to your holy name. Whatever it is that they're suffering in 106, they're suffering because of their sin. And although the author doesn't necessarily tell us specifically what that sin is, he does give us some sort of a framework in verse 6 to think about what it is that has led to God's people experiencing His displeasure rather than His favor and His blessing. So, verse 6 says, we have sinned like our fathers, we have committed iniquity, we have behaved wickedly. And then the rest of the psalm until the end cry for salvation and deliverance is a record of all the different ways, well, not all because there were a lot but many of the different ways that God's people sinned. And the author is saying those sinful acts, the ways that the people turned and strayed from you and disobeyed you and rebelled against you, the way that they did that, we've done the same thing in our present day. So let me warn you up front. Do not read Psalm 106 with a sort of New Testament, New Covenant sort of condescending pride, right, that looks back at the history of Israel, those old covenant people to say, oh, those poor miserable people. If only they had it all figured out the way that we do. If only they were saints instead of sinners. No. No. Psalm 106 is a song that God's New Testament people can sing as well. Every single one of us seated in this room can say with the author of 106, we have sinned like our fathers. Here's how God's people have sinned. Let me just, let me just point out one key way in which that happened, three times we're told in the ensuing verses that the sin that God's people committed, 
that God's people commit, continue to commit generation after generation because we all carry around the same weakness of flesh, three times that sin is attributed or sourced or traced back to the fact that the people forget. So look at verse 7. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindnesses. But they rebelled by the sea. They didn't understand. They didn't remember. And because they didn't remember, they rebelled. Verse 13. They quickly forgot His works. They did not wait for His counsel. Depending on if, if some of you have the NIV, one of the NIV versions frames it well. They did not wait for His plan to unfold. They quickly forgot His works. They did not wait for His plan, but they craved intensely in the wilderness, and they tested God. Verse 21 they forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wonders in the land of Ham, and awesome things by the Red Sea. Three times we're told that one of the root causes for God's people perpetually, consistently sinning was because they didn't remember what they should have remembered. Now, understand, 105 and 106, there's a connection. We said last week that when it says positively that God remembered His covenant, that is more than just a mental exercise. That is more than God just cognitively saying, oh yes, I remember that I said, right, and then repeating it. But that in the Old Testament framework, in these contexts, remembering is sort of a catchword for a characteristic of someone whose mind is set on something and whose actions follow in appropriate ways. So because God remembered, because His mind was always set on the promises that He had made to His people and the people who carried those promises, because His mind was always focused on that… He did everything that was appropriate and right to make those promises come to fruition. The negative side of that is what we see here in Psalm 106, where the people are said that to forget or they don't remember. In other words, it's not that they cognitively don't remember the plagues in Egypt. They could tell you what they saw a week ago. The problem is that their minds have not been set on what God did and what God was revealing such that that direction or that devotion to God worked itself out in right responses. Let's just take the first two. What does it mean in verse 7, for example? that our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders, they did not remember your abundant kindnesses, but they rebelled by the sea. 
What this is referring back to is that when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt after the ten plagues, after miracles, after signs and wonders, He brings them up to the sea where they have the sea at their back, and here comes Pharaoh with his Egyptian army to either bring them back to slavery or to strike them dead where they stand. The people, rather than expecting that God was going to do something great, say, well, it's been a good run, let's just go back to slavery. And the author says the reason that they had that attitude was because they didn't understand and they didn't remember. Here's what I think that means. When it says that they did not understand your wonders, talking about the, the wonders in Egypt, the ten plagues, I don't think that what the author is saying is that when God sent an infestation of frogs into the land that the Israelites are picking up frogs and saying, what is this? This frog, right? They're, they're coming to… They, they, they know what a frog is. They know that it's not good to have your house and your fields and everything else overrun by frogs. They know what darkness is. They know what hailstorms are. They know what death is. The problem is that when they saw God do these acts, they did not understand what those signs signified. They did not consider that God did this because in bringing them out of Egypt, He was intending to bring them in to the promised land. They viewed the actions of God in Egypt as a one-time event as isolated events, having no bearing or no indication as to what God intended to do in the future. So in their mind, well, yeah, God did some crazy cool stuff in Egypt, but where is He now? As if God just put on a show of His power so that He would lead the people out and then just let them be destroyed before they ever get the fulfillment of His promises. They did not remember that what led to those plagues was the fact that God had said, I remember the promise that I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I have come to make good on it. And so the people, because they don't remember that, because they don't think that what God does here and now is leading to bigger and better things, they don't think, they don't remember what God's motive and His purposes are, rather than saying, we will trust that God is going to do another miracle after the ten that He's already done, rather than trusting God, their faulty memories and their minds, their lack of understanding says, well, I guess we'll just go back to the old way of life. We do this all the time. Egypt in the Old Testament is the land of slavery and oppression. God's people are bound and in chains. The picture of redemption and exodus is carried over into the New Testament where our exodus, our deliverance is being brought not out of a zip code or a geographical location, but being brought out of the dominion of darkness and being brought to the kingdom of His light. 
Here's what happens with us. We sophisticated New Testament people who also sin just like our fathers. We say things like, look at what God did through Jesus Christ on the cross. Look at how He judged the powers that were arrayed against us. Look at how He defeated sin, death, and Satan. And then we acknowledge that, but the moment we run into any kind of conflict or any kind of pressure or any kind of temptation, it's like, well, I guess I had a good run. God said He was bringing me out of my slavery to sin, but here comes this temptation again. I guess I might as well just yield to it. You know what you're doing when you yield to that temptation? You know what, what I'm doing when I succumb to temptation and I sin? I am not remembering the purpose of God in saving me from my sin. He saves me from darkness to bring me into light. He does not save me. He does not save you to let you then wallow and stray and straggle and suffer in no man's land. Everything that He does is bringing you closer and closer and closer to your day of glory. But because we don't remember that, We go back to our old way of life. Listen to me, people. Do not buy in to the lies that, well, this is just who I am. I can't help it. No. A thousand times no. Peter says in 2 Peter that by His power, God has given to us everything that we need for life and godliness. If you think that you cannot break free from sin, if you think that you have to succumb to the thoughts and the philosophies of this world that bombards you every day, that would cause you to abandon the confession of your faith, that would cause you to turn your back on Jesus Christ, I appeal to you and implore you, do not forget. Do not forget that God has brought you out of that old life to bring you into new life. Do not forget that Jesus said, every vine or branch that abides in me will bear good fruit. Do not forget that God has declared that sin will no longer be master over us. For we do not serve the law, we live under grace. A second way that this is expressed, this not remembering forgetfulness, go down to verse 13. They quickly forgot His works. They did not wait for His counsel but they craved intensely in the wilderness. This is going back to once they had gotten across the sea, God is now leading them through the wilderness, ultimately to the promised land. 
In the Exodus story, they have just witnessed the miracles in Egypt, ten plagues. They have just witnessed God parting a sea, and they walk across on dry ground with the water stacked up on either side of them. And God holding the Egyptians at bay with His very presence. And then, when He removes the the obstacle of the roadblock, and the Egyptians start to follow in, God says, watch this. He closes in, the army is destroyed, they see all of that. Three days later, they're complaining and asking, is God even here? Three days. And God shows up and He gives them water that they didn't have. And they say, well, this is okay. You know, okay, okay, God, yeah, that's pretty cool, water, we we appreciate that, but we we do still kind of need something to eat too. God gives manna, bread from heaven, and the people say, you know what, this, this is good. I mean, this is new. No one's done anything like this before. It has a sweet taste to it, okay. But you know what we'd really like, God? We'd really like some quail. How about you serve us up some of that? They thought that God's provision for them, giving them water, giving them bread from heaven, they thought that what God was doing was just satisfying natural, creaturely, carnal desires. They never stopped to think that what God was doing was showing them, I have the ability to do whatever is necessary to sustain you from here till you get to the end, to your home. Listen listen to what one man said, reflecting on this attitude. He said this centuries ago. I found a book I didn't even know that I had. Right? I said, I wonder what he has to say on Psalm 106. So I look and came across this gem. And by gem, I mean something that slapped me around and convicted me. He says this, they, talking about the Israelites, they ought to have thought that these great works of God, water from a rock, bread from heaven, so on and so forth, that these great works of God towards them were not without a purpose, but that God was inviting them to some endless happiness, which was to be waited for with patience. But they hurried to make themselves happy with temporal things. They give no one true happiness because they don't quench our insatiable longing. It is possible for us to be inundated with God's blessings and to have no good understanding or clue as to why He even gives us what He does. You can be blessed in such a way that God faithfully provides for your needs day in and day out. And the moment things start to get tight or you feel like you're lacking, all of a sudden you've forgotten everything that God did as if God Himself had forgotten that you had needs. Or you can do what James says we do. James says, some of you don't have, you lack because you don't ask. 
But then he says, but then others of you, you ask so that you can spend it on your carnal pleasures. You take the blessings of God, and you think that the reason that God is blessing you is so that you can just be fat and happy. This characterized the people of God from generation to generation to generation. They constantly forgot. They did not understand. They did not appreciate what God was doing for them. And yet, God continues to let them live. (laughs) Why would He do that? It gets even better than that because another thing that's repeated in this psalm is that on two different occasions, the author tells us things got so bad for God's people that God had to actually raise up someone to stand in their place to pray for them so that He wouldn't just snuff them out as they justly deserve. Did you you catch that? So, verse 23 Therefore he said that he would not that he would destroy them had not Moses his chosen one stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them Moses did that out of view out of sight of the people on the mountaintop while the people are sinning and committing idolatry and immorality down in the camp They don't even know how bad their forgetfulness and their sin is, but God in His grace is listening to Moses praying on their behalf and says, because you have asked Moses, I won't snuff them out. By the way, this is not… This is not, don't misunderstand, a lot of times we we read passages like this and we picture God as that grumpy old man seated on His throne. He's angry because the kids won't get off his lawn, or they're not giving him the proper respect that he deserves or anything like that, and then here comes good old Moses, oh, but God, can't you just give him another chance, right? No, 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 no. Notice even with Moses, who stands up and stands in the gap to intercede before the people, notice that Moses is God's chosen one. God put Moses there. What providential goodness and grace that God says, when I bring my people out, they're going to need a lot of help because I know what kind of people they are. I can't even count on them to pray and repent and to seek forgiveness the way that they ought to. I better double up and give them someone who's going to be able to pray when they don't pray. And so he gives them Moses as a gift. Anyone hear echoes of Jesus Christ? God demonstrates his love to us in this that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. 
in this is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atonement for our sin. And now, seated at the right hand of the Father, we have someone far better than Moses. We have someone far better than Phineas who actually bled and died for the sin and the guilt of his people and who always lives to intercede for a weak and needy people like us. The mercy and the grace of God for us, His people, is so good, is so big, that He gives us, in the person of His Son, in the person of the Holy Spirit, He gives us, of Himself, Himself to intercede for us even when we don't know that we need it. David says in the Psalms, acquit me of hidden faults. You know what David is praying there? David is saying, listen, I want to confess and I want to repent. And anything that you show me, I'll bring it to the forefront. But the truth of the matter is, it's impossible for me to know just how deep and how perverse my sin is. So even the sin that I can't find out that you see, okay, God, I'm trusting that you're going to acquit me. You're going to pardon me of that sin, even though I don't even have the consciousness to pray about that sin. That's why we need Jesus. We sin because we forget. God in His grace and mercy gives us someone to stand in our place, to intercede for us. Let me make one other observation here. One of the things that is so stark and so encouraging about Psalm 106 is that you can wallow in the misery and the muck and the mire of the sinfulness of God's people recognizing, oh my God, that is me. That's holding a mirror up to me. That's how forgetful I am. That's how little I appreciate the grace of God. You can, you can wallow in that. But don't lose sight of the fact that this psalm opens and closes with praise. Here's why that's important. Number one, it's important because when we confess our sin and our unworthiness to God, that confession is itself an act of praise to God. Because what I'm saying is, look at all the things that I have done that puts me under God's righteous judgment that I deserve. I'm prideful, I'm arrogant, I'm slow to love, I don't forgive, I battle lust, I give in to lust, I have outbursts of anger, I have all these things. And after a while, as you start to go through and you list all these things off, the person who's seated next to you is probably saying, I need to find another place to sit. This dude is about to be struck down. But what happens is, the more that we confess our sins one to another, even the deep sin, even the dark sin, you have to be brought back to 
the way that this psalm opens and closes. You look at the misery of God's people left to their own devices, and you say, and yet, you're still here. Why is that? Oh, let me tell you. Where sin abounds. Grace abounds all the more. God looks good when we acknowledge how dependent we are on His grace, mercy, and forgiveness. The other thing to take note of, the fact that this psalm opens and closes with praise, when you get to the end of this psalm, it is very clear that the person who is writing this psalm is not writing this praise, this confession, on the other side of God's judgment and discipline. He is in the thick of it at the time that pen is going to paper. That means that the grace and mercy of God is so rich for His people because He never forgets His promises to us, because He never forgets His children. That means that even when we are neck deep in the pollution and the disease and the sickness of our sin, even then, God will still turn His ear to a sinner who is singing His praise. That's what He did this morning. He listened to the voices of weak, broken, mixed-up, sinful people. He heard that in one ear, and in the other ear, he heard his son. And his son was saying, this is good. I bought this. I paid for this. This, this sacrifice of praise, this counts. And it's on the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we are able to go into the throne room of God and that we are able to both sing the praises of His mercy and confess our unworthiness as sinners and yet to find hope that just as God forgave us yesterday and the week before and the year before that, that He will do it today and tomorrow and the next week and the next year, He will be forgiving you in Jesus Christ for the rest of your life. And that's reason to sing. I'm going to close with a word of prayer, and we're going to move into communion. JT is actually going to lead us through communion. I'm going to sit and enjoy communion for the first time with two of my daughters. At the end of the service, JT will make his way to the back to greet you on your way out. I'm going to remain at the front. If, if you're here... And you have anything that you want to confess, or you have questions or comments or anything like that about the nature of God's grace given to undeserving sinners, I'll stay here as long as it takes. You'll find me right down here.
Let's pray. Father, help us to see now, even as we go to this time of communion, the mercy and grace that you have poured out upon us into our hearts by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, made real to us by the presence of your Holy Spirit, whom you have given to us. Thank you that you never forget your promises, that you never forget or turn a blind eye to your children, and that in spite of our forgetfulness, we can be assured that all of your good purposes will be brought to its full and complete end because you love us and because you are good and great. Amen. Things As we come together to sing God's word, to pray God's word, and to sit under God's word through the teaching and preaching of it, we also have opportunity today uh, when we rejoice in the fact that we are able to see what God's word does and accomplishes in baptism and in the Lord's Supper. The Lord watches over his word to perform his will, to perform his works, and he is faithful to do so. So, as we remember the wondrous works of the Lord, as we seek to do that, we remember Israel at Passover uh, and how that pertains to us in Lord's Supper today. The Lord graciously delivers Israel up out of slavery from Egypt. And that happens as a result of the tenth and final plague in the Passover as the Israelites and any who take the blood of the lamb and they put it over the doorpost and the Lord passes over them. And through that final plague, the Lord delivers his people up out of slavery to Egypt. And so in doing so, the Lord graciously gives them a feast. He graciously gives them a meal, Passover. And they are to take of this yearly and for three reasons that I want to emphasize, and they're good for us to emphasize for our lives as well. Number one, the Passover meal marked out Israel, just as the Lord's Supper marks us out. So just as baptism is a public profession of faith, and a result of what the Lord has done in someone's heart and mind, the Lord's Supper continues to mark out God's people as they are in Christ Jesus. We are people, if we are in here today and we are believers in Christ Jesus, we are united to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through what God has done in bringing us salvation, through what God the Father has done in sending his Son to deal with our sins, through what the Son has done in coming for us and taking our sins upon himself and becoming the true Passover lamb, through what the Holy Spirit has done as the Holy Spirit brings to life these dead hearts so that we can see and celebrate the glories of Jesus and what he's done and accomplished for us. So the Lord's Supper marks us out as God's people. Secondly, the Passover meal nourished the people of Israel. They would be led out into the wilderness, but not before God nourishes them first, not before he gives them a meal first. We, as God's people, will leave these walls today and we will also go out, go out into a wilderness where Jesus himself says, look, as you go out, just as they've hated me, they will also hate you. This is not our home yet. And so, as we go out, we do, we do not go out as people who are malnourished. We go out as people who have been fed a feast, a meal on the Lord. And so, as we come to the Lord's Supper today, we are nourished as we reflect on God's goodness to us through what Jesus has done in dealing with our sins. Third, we remember. Israel sins against the Lord because they continually forget 
the wondrous works of the Lord. The Passover, as it's taken yearly, constantly forces them to remember and to rehearse and to get into their thick skulls and hard hearts just how good God has been in delivering them from slavery and making them his people and feeding them and nourishing them along the way. And so we come as people who are so prone to forget ourselves, who are so prone to wander. And as we come together today, we remind ourselves, we remind one another as we look to one another, not just at ourselves, but we remind ourselves, God has saved us. We are his people. And so we remember and we pray for the grace to not forget. So men, if you wanna come forward, as our men uh, begin to pass out the bread and cup, we would just ask that if you are not Uh, If you are not a believer, we would ask you to abstain from partaking of this. And if you are a believer but have not yet been baptized, we would also ask you to abstain. And one of the reasons we want to ask you to do this is, is not to embarrass you in any way, but what we actually are praying for you during this time. If you're not a believer, our prayer is that you would consider and reflect on Jesus and all of his glories and just how wretched sin is. And if you are a believer but haven't been baptized, we pray that you would consider uniting with Christ through the act of baptism, publicly professing that Jesus is saved. So let's reflect on those truths and let's pray to the Lord during this time. As the disciples and Jesus were celebrating the Passover, Jesus takes the Passover and he gives us a meal and the Lord's Supper. In Matthew chapter 26, 
verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Let's eat. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's drink. Most Holy Father, it's in your grace and in your mercy that we come to you, singing your praises, celebrating you, remembering you, setting our hearts and minds on your wondrous works and all that you have done. We thank you that in your love, even for sinners, you would send your son Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for your obedience to the Father, for your righteousness and also for your love and grace and mercy to us. We who were sinners, we who were once your enemies, children of wrath, you, Lord Jesus, came and took our sin, our shame, our guilt upon yourself, and there you dealt with it on the cross. We celebrate and remember that today. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for the ways in which you press these truths upon our hearts. We so desperately need you to do that more and more. So as we go out from here today, give us grace to remember and know that we are marked out as your people, your sons and daughters, brothers and sisters to the true King. We thank you for that. Give us grace to go out as people who are nourished, satisfied, those who have tasted and seen that you are good and we have no lack in you. Give us grace as we go out to remember and know. And give us grace in that remembrance to know that it's your Holy Spirit who is with us, dwelling within us, reminding us of all your goodness and all of your glories. Be exalted and be glorified. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. We're gonna close the service with the last verse to it as well. Um, our youth and, and youth leaders will lead us in that. After we sing this last verse in chorus, we'll be dismissed, uh, and I'll see you at the door. So if you would, let's stand and let's sing together. It's the day when my
Yeah.